Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that stands with Palestine. Obviously. (laughs) Today we have Laura, Zoe, Bianca, and Julia. And today we're talking about the occupation of Palestine, uh, what's happening on the ground currently, some historical context, and how it relates to the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States. With us today, we have Raina. Ooh, ooh. Yay, Raina, we're so excited. We love you. <laughs> we love you. We're <laughs> coming back after this. Yes. Well, you better. Uh, you may remember her from our Aid to Abolition episode. We are so excited to have her back with us again for this really important topic. Um, so, Raina, do you want to reintroduce yourself for folks and maybe talk why the, talk about why this topic is so important for you? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Raina Sultan. I use she, her pronouns, and I bullied myself back onto this podcast. Um, <laughs> you were openly invited publicly on Twitter. Yes. True, true. But I publicly <laughs> bullied you into openly inviting me. And we um, loved it. <laughs> As a fire sign, I need to be bullied. Yeah. Oh, okay, no, okay. We, so I was we like to be guest on. Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. No, we love okay. it. Perfect. <laughs> I, I could just sense it through Twitter. Exactly. Okay, so I am Lebanese, and I I have always been, like, really aware of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict from a young age. Like, my parents were doing BDS before BDS existed. Before it was cool. (laughs) Yeah, they would be like, no, we cannot go to Starbucks because they give money to Palestine, or to Israel, and I would be like, I just want a Frappuccino. Um... (laughs) Yeah, but big, big kid, like child energy. Yeah, but it was like very helpful for me to have this understanding from a young age. But it was something that I was like really ashamed of because I grew up in a very white, very evangelical Christian, very conservative place. So anytime I would bring up Palestine or anything like that, it would just be like immediately Palestinians are terrorists. Like you just stand with them because you're Arab, blah, blah, blah. So I was very like hush hush about it. And, like, every time I would try to talk about it, I was always, like, cringy, neo-lib, like, both sides have problems. And so it was just, like, a very, like, demonic part of my past. But ever since being radicalized, I feel like I can actually talk about it the way that I've always wanted to and the way that I've understood it from knowing a lot of people who are Palestinian and displaced in Lebanon and other stuff. So it's just become something that's, like, really important to me and I've written a lot about. And I'm really excited to talk about it with you today. Oh my gosh. Well, we are so excited for you to talk to us about it. So I thought we could start with some history. And this may be a bit of a refresher for those of you that uh, have listened to our other um, Occupation of Palestine episodes, but they were like very early on. So, uh, you know. Maybe you haven't listened to it in a long time, or maybe you've never listened to it. So, you know, here you go. (laughs) So the first thing I want to clarify, and it kind of ties into exactly what Reina was describing. Um, I think a lot of people who don't know anything about this topic talk about it like it's been going on forever and that it's so complicated and that like you can't fully figure out what's going on right like the neolib argument that reina was talking about 
Um, So this is not a forever conflict, as some claim. It has a fairly clear start in the late 1800s and early 1900s with the dawn of Zionism. So Zionism is the belief that Jews were given Israeli land by God, and they have a sacred duty to build modern modern structures throughout the land, even if that includes using force. So religious justification was combined with political rhetoric as political political Zionism's founder, Theodore Herzl, a.k.a. the worst dude, um, in his own diaries, um, called Zionism a colonial movement and was inspired by liberal European values that saw the West as secular and advanced over the backward traditional natives. Basically, Theodore Herzl saw the Dreyfus Affair and anti-Semitism in Europe and reached the conclusion that Jewish people simply were not being afforded their rightful place as part of the Occidental against the Orient, that European Jews deserved to be a part of European superiority over colonized people, white European assimilation in order to survive. Zionist rhetoric also claimed that Palestine was the perfect place because in addition to being religiously significant, the land was quote unquote empty, uh, which we've obviously seen in all settler colonial states. Um, So this was seen through the widely used slogan, a land without people for a people without land. Um, Of course, many Palestinians already lived in Palestine, but... Lord Balfour of Britain, who supported the Zionist measures, noted Zionism, be it right or wrong, good or bad, is rooted in age-long tradition, in present needs, in future hopes, a a far profounder import than the desire and prejudices of 700,000 Arabs who inhabit that ancient land. Okay, I want to say something that just like, okay, I'm not sure if you all have been seeing on Twitter lately, people who are like, oh, um zionism is actually the like reclamation of indigenous land and is an anti-colonial movement makes me want to throw up and i'm like herzl he wrote it down right like he wasn't even trying to hide it well yeah because at the time colonialism was (laughs) was hot you know like (laughs) like cancel culture exactly (laughs) Yeah, I saw this really wild thing on Instagram yesterday, and, like, I am going to get into this more later, but it was this post that was, like, how to be pro-Palestine without being anti-Semitic, and a lot of it was, like, stop acting like Jews aren't, like, indigenous to Israel, and I was like, oh, my God. So, a wild post. Oh. It's... It's intense. We're going to we're going to unpack that a lot more. In we a are. We are. We are. Yes. So, so, so just stay tuned. Um, so, you know, from the very beginning, Westerners allied themselves with the Zionist movement against the Palestinians. Um, so I just want to quickly go through a, a timeline of Britain's role in creating the Israeli state. The 1905 Aliens Act restricted entrance of Jewish refugees from Russian pogroms into Britain. Balfour was head of the government and responsible for this act, personally piloted it through the House of of Commons. I don't know British government, obviously. Um, But I, I think it's important for us to understand... Britain's involvement as anti-Semitic in and of itself, because the British government was like, well, we don't want you here. So like, let's, let's find you a place. 
Um, so yeah, and, and that's like the U.S. stance as well. Absolutely, of course. Political rival Churchill saw this as an opportunity to rally Jewish support for his campaign against Balfour. He had support from the Jewish Chronicle and the Board of Deputies of British Jews. Balfour and Churchill, both motivated by anti-communist sentiment, saw supporting a Jewish homeland and then a state as a buffer against, quote, Judeo-Bolshevism. This alignment goes against the self-determination that Britain, Britain promised to the Palestinian people before the dawn of Zionism. So the Balfour Declaration vaguely mentions rights of non-Jews on the land, but intentionally left out political rights. Um, the population of this region was predominantly Muslim and Christian Arabs. It was only through a mass exodus of Jews from Europe, which started far before the Holocaust, that Jews in Palestine even began to maintain a significant percentage of the population. European leaders backed Zionism in part because they were partially at fault. Um, the development of Zionism as a political movement was entirely a product of European society in an age of imperialism, and it is impossible to understand outside of this context. Zionism was one response, the nationalist response, of a section of Jews to the resurgence of anti-Semitism in Europe. Yeah, and I also just wanted to mention, like Zoe was saying before, that the U.S. also played a similar role in the creation of Israel. So, like, similar to Britain, the U.S. government had anti-Semitic and, of course, also very racist immigration laws. Um, even before the Holocaust, um, countries with larger Jewish populations like Poland and Romania had much lower immigration quotas as compared to countries that didn't have as big Jewish populations. Um, and also during the Holocaust, the U.S. continued to limit immigration even more. They actually often denied Jewish immigrants from entering the U.S. if they had close family members still in German-occupied countries. Um, and this was based on this really xenophobic logic that was like Germany could blackmail them into being spies oh by God. like threatening their family members. Yeah, like it's totally, I mean... It reminds me of like things that we see more commonly used today against Arab immigrants to the U.S., like mm -hmm. this idea of dual loyalty, which is also kind of an anti-Semitic dog whistle. Um, so the U.S. government also supported the creation of Israel partly as this quote unquote solution to a problem that they didn't want to deal with by actually letting a significant number of Jewish immigrants into the U.S., this is literally what happens when everyone's like, Abraham Lincoln was an abolitionist, but really he just wanted <laughs> enslaved Africans to go back to Africa. Yeah. Right, like, exactly. People just like leave out all the parts they don't feel like reading about. Of course. Yep, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, to me, it totally makes sense that this form of anti-Semitism is linked to Zionism. Like they have always gone hand in hand. Ooh, absolutely. In 1945, Britain didn't know what to do with the mounting conflict um, that was happening between um, Israelis and Palestinians, so they turned the issue over to the United Nations. They were also facing both Palestinian and Jewish armed resistance. Um, the United Nations made up a partition in 1947 where the land was divided into two states. Arabs received 43% of the land, even though they made up 69% of the population and owned over 92% of the land. Jews were given 56% of the land, often the most fertile land, and only made up 31% of the population. The partition in, his, in the history of Palestine is an act of destruction committed within a framework of a UN, quote, peace plan that drew no international condemnation whatsoever. 
Partition signifies international complicity in the crime of destruction, not a peace offer. That's why it's fuck the UN in the post. Yes. Fuck the UN. Well, fuck the... Yeah, I mean, of course. Um, (laughs) (laughs) What are we even talking about here? (laughs) Um, So within this framework, anyone who spoke out against the partition became an automatic enemy of peace. So even though that meant almost 300,000 Palestinians were expelled from their homes... (sighs) Anyway... Seizing the international moment, Israel officially announced its statehood on May 15th, 1948. This is this sparked what's known as the Nakba or the catastrophe, which was a full-scale international I'm sorry, a full-scale intentional ethnic cleansing as well as massacres like Deir Yassin. Um, Israeli troops, even though neighboring Arab countries backed Palestine, outnumbered the Palestinian forces by um, 90,000 to 68,000. After the Nakbar, the Israeli army took even more land. The West Bank came under the jurisdiction of Jordan and Gaza came under Egypt. Over 700,000 Palestinian refugees were forced out of their homes, many of which thought they would be able to return, though, um, as we know now, this would never happen. So the Palestinian refugee crisis would only be exacerbated with the 1967 war, where the Israeli state determined that it wanted to occupy the rest of Palestine. This displaced more than 400,000 Palestines, many of which were being displaced for a second time. This refugee crisis is unique because it has far more permanence than any other refugee settlements in the world. Many Palestinian refugees are the third or fourth generation to be born into the refugee camps. Additionally, these refugee camps were not, and still are not, safe havens. The military occupation um, by Israeli force the Israeli Defense Forces, can only be described as unbearable. These conditions led to the first acts of resistance called the Intifada. And I know that Reina wanted to talk more specifically about um, the Palestinian communities within Lebanon and Jordan. Yeah, I know that, like, one of the, like, big Zionist talking points is that, like, Palestine didn't exist and they're just the same people as Jordanians or as Lebanese people or Syrians. And that's, one, just not true, but... Also, it can be seen in the way that these like host countries treat Palestinian refugees. And like, though there is wide scale support for Palestine and the struggle for Palestinian freedom in the Middle East, the way that these states like treat Palestinian refugees is actually really shitty. And in Lebanon specifically, there's like huge populations of Palestinians like so many people that I know who are like, say they're like from Lebanon are actually people who were born in Lebanon because their parents or their grandparents had fled during the Nakba. So they're like, Palestinians are basically a second class of citizens in Lebanon. And the majority are not allowed to gain Lebanese citizenship, even though some of them have either been born there or have been there literally since 1949. And it's become this like really huge crisis where 
a bunch of Palestinians work for like way less in, in a similar way where it's like we have migrant workers in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Palestinians are treated much the same, except they're not migrants because they literally have like created their homes in Lebanon, but are still restricted to these refugee camps or these like certain buildings that they've been relegated to. Um, and they can't even like obtain free treatment at hospitals. And there's like a huge amount of Palestinian students who can't go to school because it's like child labor is really prevalent among the population. It's basically just like a complete and utter disaster. And Lebanon doesn't even know how to handle its own population. And that's why there's been like a revolution there since the fall. But it's also a host country for not only Palestinians, but Syrians and some Iraqis as well. And it's just been years and years and years of them mistreating this population. But because Palestinians have no right of return, there's like basically no choice they have but to stay in Lebanon. So it's just really, really fucked up. And there's like 12 or 13 refugee camps that are filled with like generations of Palestinians, many of which were born in Lebanon. Mm. And they're still not considered Lebanese citizens, which like Lebanon has very fucking weird um, like citizenship laws. Like if it's your mother who's Lebanese, you don't get to claim citizenship because like misogyny. So it's just like pretty much a disaster. Yeah. So this kind of led up to, of course, acts of resistance, which, you know, we must understand as as the only rational response um and so these these resistance movements are called intifadas so the first intifada or shaking off included large amounts of palestinians rebelling against the israeli occupation homemade weapons were used against the israelis as the palestinians did not have access to formal military weapons as a result the israeli government took on a policy that came to be known as the Break the Bones strategy. So during the first intifada, over 400,000 Palestinians were imprisoned without any charges, and torture was rampant. Often, the United States and other Western elites cite the intifadas as the reason why they assist and align themselves with Israel. To be clear, Western elites are horrified by the idea that people have the right to resist occupation and genocide by any means. When they see Israeli soldiers menacing children with guns as legitimate defensive violence, but children throwing rocks or men with homemade guns against tanks as scary. Concerning violence, we need to ask ourselves, who has the monopoly on the legitimate use of violence? And I know that, like, of course, we can relate this back to the United States, which I know Reina wanted to speak about as well. So I think that, like, on your question about who has the monopoly on legitimate use of violence is, like, the exact question we're asking ourselves right now in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And ding, 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 the answer is always the oppressor. But it's, like, I get really frustrated when I see people who are, like, outspoken Zionists being like support black lives matter like stop the use of police force and i'm like wait what and they're like looting is allowed and we should like riot again and i'm like do you do you hear yourself yeah and i think that it's like very frustrating to witness that but at the same time we have to think about it in the same way when the state enacts violence against people it will never be an overreaction of the marginalized to fight back with violence. 
like absolutely when you use I don't it's like I feel like I forget the amount because it's so huge but I'm pretty sure it's three billion dollars a year but when you have three billion dollars a year from the U.S. Mm-hmm. for basically weapons yeah and you're using all of those three billion dollars of weapons against a marginalized population and they throw rocks back at you like it's literally not the same and it is exactly the same thing that we're seeing when people are talking about police like ramming their cars into protesters or beating the shit out of them with batons and then someone's like how dare you burn down the precinct like they're not even close to the same level and we really have to look at it in a way that we can understand that like state violence an individual rising up against oppression is never, ever going to match up. It is always going to be an excessive use of force on behalf of the state and a normal reaction to oppression from the marginalized people. And the longer we talk about it as if Israeli soldiers and Palestinian citizens are like an equal matchup in a war of like equals, we're just going to go around and around in circles because this both sideism, which I was guilty of when I was younger, is just making it look like there isn't an apartheid, which there is. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. Well, and it also in the United States, there's the added layer of like, there are many um, states that have right to conceal and carry laws, um, but those laws, laws clearly only um, are there for white people because anyone else who was able to carry a, wep- a weapon or a firearm uh, would would be con- considered a threat by the state, right? But not white people. So I think... Right, and we see that, like, so often in history. The reason that California has all of these gun laws is directly because the Black Panthers decided to open carry. And I think that people forget that the NRA also was, like, fucking silent when the police murdered Philando Castile. Right. Right. Yeah, it's also, I mean, like the the IDF, the Israeli military force is so, a defense force is so intrinsic. Like it's, a lot of people probably know this, but it is required when you turn 18 that you serve a minimum of two years um, in the military. And for those who like can't necessarily be like active fighters in the military, like you'll be uh like nurse for it or you know other jobs but like you have to serve the military for two years when you turn 18 or you are exiled yeah so like being israeli is being part of the military complex yes and there's that swifty who like conscientiously objected and went to prison mm-hmm. and that is what happens like yeah, exactly. And the thing is, if there was like a mass amount of people who conscientiously objected, it would actually like be a really powerful action. And like, I don't think that they could like theoretically jail that many people, but that requires like the ruling class to deal with what's been afforded to them and actually decide that they want to be on the side of the people who are oppressed, which is why I get like frustrated with the liberal Zionists who are like, no, 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 we're like pro-Palestine also. And it's like, you can't really say that until you're willing to risk your own comfort mm-hmm. for the people who are being attacked and ethnically cleansed out of their own land. <sighs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so, like, we're talking about these conflicts. 
Um, we we know that the Israeli state has has way more advanced uh, weaponry, um, and that is of course due to the United States directly supplying them with that, which we will also get into more later. Um, but there are other things that um, affected Palestinians disproportionately. Um, since 1967, about 12,000 Palestinian homes were demolished, and 700 of which were during the Oslo peace talks. So if you think like, you know, when Bill Clinton just like thought he was healing all the things and like he didn't, he knew what he was fucking doing. But I mean, if y'all thought he was... If y'all thought he was healing things, he was not. Um, Israelis are allowed to continue expanding their settlements throughout the region, displacing more and more Palestinians of their land. Architectural structures such, such as pipes and roads were built in a, such a way to harm Palestinians. For example, water pipes throughout the region are purposefully built deeper on Israeli land and shallower on Palestinian land. So this creates like a water crisis on a regular basis because if there's a drought, it's going to affect Palestinians before it affects um, Israelis. And I know that Reina also wanted to talk about the apartheid wall here. Yeah. Um, I also just want to say that it's like really jarring to see the same techniques being used on indigenous populations all around the world. Like, mm. Obviously, water is life and it is something that is used as like an antagonizing force against indigenous populations, as we saw, obviously, here in the U.S. But it's the same thing that's going on in Palestine. They're making sure that the resources people need to survive are not easily accessible. Um, and that exactly. is part of the reason that the apartheid wall exists. And so if you don't know about this wall, it is a huge like it must be like 400 miles or something like a giant giant wall that separates the west bank from israel and um it's actually like i think donald trump like tweeted like bb i love your wall like we want one and it's like every single moment i'm just like we're watching in real time settler colonial regimes like learn from each other yeah Exactly. Um, which is very scary and gross. <sighs> yeah. So the separation wall is basically to make sure that Palestinians don't have freedom of movement mm-hmm. because they they also like use all the same bullshit reasons that Donald Trump was like, we can't have Mexicans here because they're saying that like Palestinians will bring drugs and violence into Israel and whatnot when it's like, no, they're just trying to get into the other part of the land that's still theirs. Um, And all of these, like, there's the walls, there's the border crossings. And a lot of these things are like barriers that Palestinians have to cross every single day because they're um, a lot of Palestinians who work literally as migrant workers into Israel because that's where the wages are higher, but they have to go through, um, they have to go through these like checkpoints and they get super clogged with people. Sometimes they will just be like, no more, even though these people are going in to work. So you have to have a permit to go into work. You have to have a permit to get medical treatment, which is very often denied. Um, There were two protesters 
sorry, I'm like now just going on. No, uh, please. I'm really long tangent. Yeah. Um, but last, I think it started last summer, but there was those right of return protests every Friday in Gaza. And um, two of the protesters were like attacked by the Israeli military and literally had their legs blown off. And they were not allowed into Israel for a medical treatment because they were like terrorists for protesting. And this is like not unheard of. And it's like not even all, if you're like, oh my God, no, protesting is terrible. It's not even just that. There's people who have cancer who can't mm-hmm. go in for chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. And you might be wondering, wait, don't Palestinians have hospitals? Yes, but they also have three to four hours of electricity a day. So you can't really do a lot of shit in the hospital when there's no electricity and then no water because of the pipe situation. So Gaza is literally just like a giant prison, Mm -hmm. a giant prison where every few years Israel decides to like bomb the shit out of it and then be like, we were afraid. So the wall and all other aspects of Israel is just to like keep growing and growing and growing and pushing Palestinians as far out until they don't exist anymore. Yeah. And so all extremely well said. Um, I think it's really important that we use the word apartheid as we have been. And I think it's important for, you know, everyone to be using this word. Um, Libs love to hold up um, South Africa and like the end of apartheid under like they they love to to use it as like a social justice issue that they could get behind like they understood and yet and yet um we have an apartheid happening and has been happening for a long time um and because the united states directly benefits from israel being a like a regional superpower um because it's it's the only it's the only state in the region that has um, nuclear weapons, and those of course were directly uh, sent from the United States. And uh, it's just is really- Israel one of the ones that's on the list that's like secretly has them, or are they one of the ones that like? are allowed to you know how? oh yeah i think they're i think they're allowed to i think like it's it's pretty out in the open um i'm not 100 sure on that though because i don't check that list very regularly me neither i'm not like googling like who's supposed to have nukes right (laughs) so you know it's really important to recognize the rhetoric around these things too and how people particularly as you know we're all in the united states like how people in the united states talk about this but um, I was wondering if, Reina, you could give us a little bit of context on what's been happening in Palestine recently. Yeah, definitely. Um, so as 2020 has been the probably longest year ever. Um, yes. Is it still 2020? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, it is. Um, so I guess I'll give like a brief 2020 explainer. Um, but if you remember January, I barely do. Um, who was that? She? Was when the, uh, yeah, I don't know her. Um, who, <laughs> <laughs> when I know, I also, Jan- I can't, I don't even, so much happened in January that I was like, whoa, 2020, and then the pandemic, exactly. Um, so in January, um, Jared Kushner, remember him, <laughs> he announced 
with Donald Trump, the deal of the century. I'm literally like reading this off of an article I wrote and I don't even recognize the words because it feels like it was such a long time ago. Um, Extremely relatable. (laughs) Yeah. So he was like, this is an opportunity for Palestinians. And in this deal, it basically says every single illegal Israeli settlement um, is legitimate and it will just be given to Israel. And then all of Jerusalem would be annexed to Israel. And Jared Kushner said, if the Palestinians said no, it would, quote, screw up another opportunity like they've screwed up every other opportunity that they've ever had in their existence, end quote. Thank God. So. Fuck <laughs> that guy. Let's I know. Just, I know. Sorry, I just need to scream about said it. This, no, he said this on, like, CNN. Oh, like, just straight up. Like, like, hello, here I am. Yeah. And then he said in the same interview. If they don't, this part is me paraphrasing, if they don't bow down to Netanyahu, then they will, quote, have a very hard time looking at the international community in the face and saying they have rights. Oh. Like, Oh, just what? saying they have rights? Yeah. You I, can, I hate no everyone. Rights. <laughs> I hate everyone. So this was January. Basically, it was a peace plan that was, gonna just be like Israel you rock Palestine you suck um America loves Israel the end mm. and so this is all happening in the lead up to oh my gosh also Jared Kushner said I'm sorry I like this is this is a Jared Kushner hate episode now ready um he said that Palestinian self-determination was a fairy tale like okay um so that's all happening then pandemic so obviously as i just mentioned five seconds ago um palestinians don't get to just like move freely throughout israel and palestine and so once the coronavirus started and obviously people needed medical treatment it was very very difficult for palestinians to get into israel for that treatment i was like doing some extra research about this earlier today and when you google it it was like israeli and palestinians like coming together to fight the coronavirus, a common enemy. And I was just like, okay, go fuck yourself. Um, Because that is not what happened. And also like, I don't like how we keep talking about the coronavirus, like it's Al Qaeda. Like Mm -hmm. it's a pandemic, not a terrorist. And like, I know that Americans have this thing where we like need to make the coronavirus Muslim so we can like fight it better. But I don't know why we have to talk about it like an enemy that needs eliminating the war against coronavirus. Like, stop. Just wear a fucking mask. Um, That was sidebar. Sidebar for America. Um, Perfect. So there was all these people who needed medical treatment. However, there were a lot fewer people in Palestine who tested positive for COVID than in Israel. So there was this whole snafu because Palestinians, like I said, there's like 60,000 every single day or something who go into Israel for work, were being stopped by Palestinians at the border being like, yo, don't go in there because you're going to bring COVID back here. But all of these people don't have other choices for money. And because Palestine is so like starved out from food, water, medical stuff, they need this money. And so it created this whole issue where Palestinian workers weren't able to go in for work, but they weren't being given any like social services. So that's like still happening. Um, So 
deal of the century, coronavirus, and now annexation. So annexation makes it sound like not what it is <laughs> to me. Like I think annexation sounds like very tame and not yeah, like stealing. It's like a euphemism. <laughs> yeah. Um, so basically it just means Israel has decided that it wants more land and they are going to take it by any means necessary, which they are calling annexation. So this is basically... Okay, so the West Bank right now is what a lot of people refer to as occupied Palestine, even though technically all of Palestine is occupied. But technically, by like the white people's laws, the West Bank is the part that is like Palestinian controlled. So there is settlements that grow and grow and grow and grow every single year where it's mostly interestingly enough young people who have been like radicalized towards this like really intense type of zionism where they're like we have to take this land right now and so these people just like storm palestinian villages and take their houses and everyone's like okay like i don't i know that sounds like i'm infantilizing the situation but that's literally what happens like people come in with bulldozers steal a bunch of people's lands and the Palestinians just have to leave like there's nothing they can do about it when they fight back they get murdered or put in prison forever or like condemned by international communities so annexation is what's happening right now and you might have seen like a lot of stuff on Twitter there's been actions in like all over the U.S. about people saying they would like to stop the annexation there's been all these like petitions I don't know if they think like Netanyahu's gonna read their like change.org petition and be like oh I'm so sorry I'm not actually gonna take the rest of the West Bank um but that's not what's gonna happen so um basically they're trying to take a huge amount of the West Bank because they say that it is strategically necessary for their self-defense against the Palestinians who have like rocks and um Also, I believe that there is like a religious argument to um, parts of the West Bank being like really important for um, for like religious rights Mm -hmm. for Jewish people. Mm -hmm. So before this, annexation was like a no go, because even though there's always been a U.S. favor for Israel and obviously like a huge financial favor as well. It's been, like, people have, like, presidents have usually been like, okay, but the settlements are bad, or we're not going to make Jerusalem the capital because that recognizes, um, like, that gives too much favor. Mm -hmm. But the Trump administration has just been like, fuck Palestine. So this is, like, the perfect opportunity for Netanyahu to do whatever the fuck he wants because he won't have the type of resistance that he might have had previously. Exactly. Um, so this is basically just like the most perfect moment, especially when people are super distracted because of the pandemic and because of like protests in the US. And there is like a an idea that he'd like to do all of this before in the case that Joe Biden wins which I don't know that Joe Biden would like stop an annexation. 
but not likely but yeah we yeah yeah, we don't know but like in in theory there's like confusion about that (laughs) so basically that's all that's just happened from january until july Mm. um so that's uh just just a little few months just a little taste yeah yeah exactly um so yeah i know we wanted to just move into what we're calling jewish corner with zoe and julia (laughs) Woo! Yay! Yay. Amazing. Um, Cool. So, oh, I have a lot to say, but um, yeah, this has been like a really complicated topic for me since I was little because as I was saying earlier to Reina, like my dad's side of the family is Lebanon and my side of the family are Eastern European Jews, some of whom are Zionists, not my immediate family, but I am related to some. And they will hate everything that I'm about to say, but I don't think they listen to my podcast. Um, (laughs) But alas, I am a certified Jewish Sunday school teacher. So what I say goes. So if anyone is like, questions you, if you repeat any of these facts, be like, a Jewish school teacher taught me this. And it's true. Um, Do I currently teach Hebrew school? No, I don't. Um, But I could. So anyway. (laughs) Um, yeah, which makes it like hilarious to me when people are like, oh, you're a self-hating Jew because you're pro-Palestine. And it's like, no, I love being Jewish. And that's why I think it's really offensive to like equate Judaism to what's happening in Israel. Yes, it's anti-Semitic to be pro-Israel is. because it's saying such shitty things about Jewish people. Yes, exactly. totally. And most of the people who say things like that are not even Jewish. I Ugh. just want to say. Yes. exactly yeah but I think like this information is really important for everyone like I think for Jews it can be really hard to have these conversations with family because it is like a really sensitive topic Mm -hmm. and I get that but also for non-Jews I think it's common even amongst the left to like treat Jews as this like monolithic group which isn't true of any group um but especially like the radical and working class history of Jews is consistently left out of the narrative as like I think Raina mentioned earlier, it's left out of every, like in every narrative, the like radical working class history is left out. Um, But this is one of my special interests to read about. So we're going to get into it. Yes. (laughs) And um, yeah, so I'm using these like two main books that I'll just plug real quick. One of them is called Israel slash Palestine and the Queer International by Sarah Shulman. Um, And she makes a lot of comparisons to the Palestinian, um, conflict with like racism in the US. So that is very apt to this episode. And then the other one is Revolutionary Yiddish Land, a history of Jewish radicalism, which is like an oral history of these two writers who, yeah, who like interviewed a bunch of survivors from Eastern European Yiddish Land and wrote this book. So that's where a lot of this information is coming from. If you want to know more, I highly recommend both of those. Um, But yeah, so the Jewish experience, like traditionally is being part of a diasporic group. It's not being part of an ethno state. Sarah Shulman puts this really well in her book where she says, quote, it meant leaving the diaspora, exiting the experience of being a minority as a Jew and choosing to be dominant. Um, Also an important note here is that Zionism has always been a minority position amongst Jews, meaning that like at any given time since Israel has existed, less than half of Jews support it. Mm. Um, Which I think like people act like, oh, if you are against Israel, you're against Jews. And it's like, no, most Jews are against Israel. (laughs) So that's important to know. 
Um, and like, as Laura was saying in the intro, like Israel was created because after the Holocaust, Western countries were like, oops, we let a genocide happen and we have to make it look like we're doing something, but we don't want Jews in our countries. And we also want a military base in the Middle East. And like, there you have it. Exactly. So yeah, one thing I really want to talk about is how like Israel is diametrically opposed to actual Jewish texts and customs. Most notably the custom of tikkun olam, which means repairing the world. And hilariously, I found this article today when I was like looking some of this stuff up to like refresh my knowledge. There's this article from a Zionist like Jewish um, website. And the headline was the fallacy, delusion of, and myth of tikkun olam. And within it, it said, this repair rhetoric has become an obsession, a catch-all credo. Everything today is tikkun olam. Enough tikkun olam. It's senseless and meaningless. And I was like, Look, a Zionist would fucking say that. Right. Right. <laughs> Bro. Yeah, what? Like, it was, That's so yeah, wild. I, couldn't even read the whole article. I was like, this is absolutely absurd. That's like um, really fucked up. Yeah. It's like, stop talking about repairing the world. You don't know what you're talking about. It was like, okay. like that meme. <laughs> and like, of like, course. We have moved past the need of repairing the world. Exactly. And of course, on the sidebar of the website, it was like, Israeli internships. And I was like, yeah, this all adds up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, yeah. But another, um, like, aspect of judaism that is very opposed to israel is like so i'm sure people most people know what like bar and bat mitzvahs are but aside from just like the fun party part a mitzvah means to do a good deed and typically um prior to the day of your actual bar bat mitzvah you are required to do um volunteer work or perform mitzvot, the plural, in your community to be considered a Jewish adult. So like becoming a Jewish adult means giving back to your community and trying to repair the world. So both of, like both your traditional texts and more recent Jewish history that I'm about to get into, like social justice is intrinsic to being Jewish in a way that Israel is completely opposed to. So the next thing I want to talk about is the erasure of Yiddish within Israel um, and the persecution of Jewish leftists. So in Revolutionary Yiddish Land, the book I was saying, which is like an oral history, um, it was, it originally came out in the 80s. And since then, this is now the second edition. And so they wrote this intro that explains that some of the people who they talked to who um live in Israel were persecuted for like speaking out about leftist affiliations and and previously being part of Yiddish land. Um, And just to be clear, Yiddish land is the word for like all of the Eastern European Jewish um, neighborhoods, mostly ghettos where Yiddish was spoken is referred to as Yiddish land. Um, So, and the book specifically describes Israel as a counter and a polar opposite to revolutionary Yiddish land. So in 1939, um, so right before the World War, um, 99,000 people were members of the Jewish trade union movement, which is huge. Now in Poland, sorry, specifically. So that was just in Poland. There were these major working class Jewish movements all in Eastern Europe. And while anti-Semitism, of course, runs very, very deep all over, um, there is also a major class element that gets left out of the Holocaust narrative. Um, So Yiddish as a language was created so that Jews had their own language, but specifically um, one of the main reasons that Yiddish was invented or 
however, <laughs> whatever you say for like a language becoming a language, <laughs> yeah. um, it was the, the purpose of it was so that was for leftist propaganda, organizing mutual aids and like other radical work that was happening in these Jewish communities. That's and, so fucking cool. Yeah. And so my grandparents and great grandparents were Yiddish speakers. So like, I love all of this. Um, but as Jews emigrated to Israel, as it was becoming Israel, um, they didn't allow Yiddish speaking within Israel. They were like, you speak Hebrew now, you're Israeli, which is like deeply tied to classism and respectability politics within Judaism, even though a minority, uh, sorry, even though a majority of Jews who were killed in the Holocaust were Yiddish speakers. So for anyone who thinks that Israel is like the safe space for Jews, it's really not like from the beginning, it has not been. Um, <clears throat> They also did this to um, Arab Jews in Israel who like lived there before Israel was created because they were Palestinian and they made them stop speaking Arabic. Yeah, it's so like, it's so focused on assimilation in a way that is completely opposed to like what Judaism historically is and obviously in a way that's very fucked up. Um, so getting towards the end of my history lesson, but I want to read a quote from revolutionary Yiddish land that talks about this opposition. Um, and they wrote, it was against the traditions of this revolutionary movement, that being of Yiddish land, against its utopia, its history, and its memory, that the Hebrew state was established along with its own founding myths. As we have said, the movement was internationalist, universalist, secular, and progressive, whereas Israel is separatist, chauvinist, clerical, and conservative. The movement headed for the future of a better world, a more just and humane society. Israel has reinvented the ghetto and embedded itself in the irrational exaltation of a mythical past. It perceives its future only in the intoxication of its strength, its proud isolation defended by tanks and fighter planes. Yeah, um, obviously there's so much more, but I was trying to cut down. So as I said, you can read these books and learn more, but to transition more into talking about Black Lives Matter, um, which we want to do with the rest of this episode. As Kellen mentioned on our Jewish Solidarity ep, uh, where we talked about the border camps and like Jewish activists um, that have been working on that. There's a really long history of Jewish activists in the U.S. and connecting um, Jewish experiences all over as a persecuted group with others around the world. And no, that does not mean it's okay for white Jewish people to say things like, we know what it's like to be black in the U.S., as Sasha, who is a Jewish person of color, mentioned on our White Silence episode, that's still very fucked up, and erases the existence of Black Jews and other um, Jews who are people of color, which I know Julia and Reina are going to talk about more in a second. The last thing I just wanted to mention in that vein is that a couple of years ago, I went to a Black synagogue in Philly um, with my friend, and who, who is... Um, black and she wanted to go and like brought me with her but it was so fun because they do the same um prayers that like the same prayers so I knew the words but the tunes are like way more soulful and like it was they were like bops yeah so it was honestly so fun and like there is this thing of you know Judaism as like a closed culture and the black synagogue was like way more welcoming they were like thrilled we were there they just like wanted to talk to us and it was like honestly a really fun service so mm -hmm. yeah but um there's my lesson <laughs> <laughs> that yeah, was an amazing I, lesson <laughs> thank you 
That was great. So I did not know a lot of that. I am not a great Jew. So that was amazing. You're perfect um, just the way you are. Exactly. <laughs> Most people don't know all of that. This is just like something that I really nerd out over. Partially because I feel like I need to like really defend my stance and like have these facts on hand. <laughs> totally. That's that's totally understandable. And yeah. I feel like, I mean, my so my dad's side of the family is Jewish and like definitely more in the like they're not super religious but kind of in that vein of like Judaism is activism and progressivism um so I feel like lucky to have been raised with some of that influence even though like you said like I definitely have people who lean more towards Zionism in my extended family who I don't know super well but they also would hate this hopefully they <laughs> don't listen to this podcast yeah it is such a like <laughs> such a conflict inducing inducing yeah like it's it's, really hard to talk about it's rough it's tough and like I feel like they're I don't know yes it's very complicated but I think one thing that really bothers me is like this whole idea that this like American Jewish support for Israel is like a huge Zionist talking point um like I mentioned a lot of people who say this are not Jewish and I just think it's important to be clear that a lot of American Jews don't support the Israeli government. And also, like we were talking about, there are Palestinian Jews and Arab Jews who lived in Palestine before Israel was created and who also face oppression from the Israeli government. So I think this whole idea that it's a religious conflict is not entirely accurate. Like it's also racial, it's also based on this sort of ethno-state idea. Um, And in my experience, the Jewish people in the U.S. who support Israel do tend to be wealthier and whiter and benefit more from Western power structures. And that is part of what allows them or helps them to buy into these ideas about Israel being great. Um, And like, I think we also just wanted to talk about the idea that there's this kind of frustrating thing that happens where people just act like there are no Jews of color and no Palestinian Jewish people, which is just not the case. Um, And I kind of wanted to ask Reina, like, I feel like people dismiss similarities between Israeli apartheid and like black activists in the US and other oppression faced by people of color worldwide because the Israeli apartheid is portrayed as this religious conflict rather than something that has to do with race or colorism. And I was wondering if you could like talk about how you think racism plays into Israeli apartheid. Yeah, absolutely. I think that something that's really hard for people is that they don't want to criticize the way that the Israeli government works or oppresses others because they see Jewish people as an oppressed group, which is correct, but there is no rule that says that people who are oppressed can't also do the oppressing in certain scenarios. Mm -hmm. So while like, I think a really good like example of this is when people talk about um, someone who's like committed harm against them, like sexual abuse or something. And you find out that like the survivor has also done something bad in their life. And people think that like now they've like, been disqualified from speaking out against it it can work in the opposite way as well like just because some people have experienced oppression in other parts of the world or other parts of their life it doesn't mean that they are allowed to do 
bad things to others. Like we shouldn't be perpetuating the harm that's been done to us. And so I think that there's a lot going on in terms of like racism in um, Israel and Palestine. But one of the, I think, most clear cut cases is that when Israel was being founded and um, the Zionist mission was to try to get as many Jewish people as possible into Israel so that there would be more Jewish people than Palestinian um, Christians and Muslims. They started to just like recruit Jewish people from all over the world to come, um, which I think was called like the Aliyah. And there were, there's a lot of Ethiopian Jews. And so a lot of them were recruited by white Jews in Israel to come live in, at that point, what was becoming Israel. And so we talked earlier about how there's like a lot of seizure of Palestinian apartments and houses. And those were all given to Jewish people who emigrated from Europe. Mm-hmm. And all of the Ethiopian Jews were put in Bedouin tents in the desert yeah for well, years <laughs> and also weren't granted the same citizenship rights that were yeah. like when they were like right. all jews have citizenship in israel and then they're like mm, actually uh maybe not y'all over there that came from yeah. egypt and ethiopia more recently there's been like a huge push to expel a lot of black um refugees from africa out of Israel, like they were just like, nope, none of you, no thank you, get out of here. And for a state that was founded in theory to like host people who were escaping oppression, which is like the very common narrative, they are really only interested in a certain type of person. Mm. And I think that that is like something that's really hard to contend with because I can imagine that for a lot of people, it was like a refuge for them, but we can't look at it just from the experience of people who had a positive experience. There are so many um, like accounts of Arab Jews who felt like their culture was being stripped because they had to choose between being Arab and being Jewish when the things are not mutually exclusive. And people talk a lot about how um, like Arab countries express solidarity with Palestine because everybody's Muslim when in fact there are a huge amount of Palestinian Christians and I just saw the other day I think it was like a meme or something that the IDF posted also yes I just said a meme that the IDF posted um, oh yeah that, that, their, that, their that. social media is insane I've never said sense. anything like it it's it's true okay yeah so we don't even have time to get into it but yeah <laughs> literally a whole oh god we could do on that yeah um they posted something about how it was like the best place in the middle east for christians and i was like what what which which christians yeah. what like you mean I'm the white baffled. <laughs> yeah it's wild because it's Yeah, I was just like, I don't think you remember about all these people that you've been oppressing. There's like countless Christian villages in Palestine that have been demolished and massacred by Israel. And I think that there is this like deep, deep understanding that there are 
Jews who are far more privileged in Israel and those who are not. And so when we're talking about oppression and racism in Israel, it's not only against Palestinian people. And I think that we do a disservice to other people who are mistreated by the state of Israel to make it only about Palestinians. Like, of course, Palestinians have sovereignty over that land and they should be free. But it's also not fair that in creating this project and creating the settler colonial state, Israel is now further oppressing Jews of color who were already oppressed from wherever they came from and then came somewhere that they were meant to be safe. Exactly. Um, so because we're literally already over time, but we need to talk about this because as promised, we want to connect this to the Black Lives Matter movement. So I guess we kind of already have gotten into this, but um, as Laura and everyone has been saying, we did want to connect what we've been discussing in this episode to the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, so while the uprisings that are happening in the U.S. right now are rightfully centering Black communities, something that's also been mentioned a lot lately is the idea of um, decolonization and abolition as international projects. Uh, I know that a lot of people and we recently have been quoting Ruth Wilson Gilmore a lot lately and for good reason, but um, love her. Yes. I love her too. I love <laughs> yeah. her too. I met her once. What? Met her once. Oh my God. She's uh, from New Haven, which is... Um, She's great. Love her. <laughs> yeah. But she said in a recent interview that, quote, uh, abolition must stretch across borders so that we can consolidate our strength, our experience, and our vision for a better world, end quote. And so um, we wanted to talk about the parallels between the Black Lives Matter movement and the Palestinian intifadas and their mutual connections to abolition. Um, but first, I think we should also discuss the differences in terms of history and culture and dynamics between what's been happening in the U.S. and what's been happening within the Israel apartheid. So, for example, historically, other European colonizers have sought to colonize lands like what eventually became known as the United States um, for largely like purely economic reasons, and they wanted to profit off the riches of those lands and through the exploitation of those who live there natively. Um, and I think Zionists had a motive that was not specifically economic, but rather one, um, like other people have discussed already, that was based more on this ethno-nationalistic sentiment. And they sought nationhood um, by creating the state for themselves. And so it meant that it wasn't so much that Zionists wanted to exploit Palestinians and Jews of color uh, for their labor or wealth, but rather they, that they believe that they could not coexist at all with them. Um, and so, of course, all of this is atrocious, and we're not making any you know, comparisons in moral value between these different motivations. But rather, I think it's important to highlight that colonization and settler mentality occurs and is justified through a ton of different moral, uh, morally bankrupt and evil ways. Uh, but I also think that there are a lot of structural similarities between these two movements in that there is a settler group who have forcibly centralized their power, who are now using that power to oppress and kill a group who they've, who they've determined to be second class. And that historically marginalized group has now justifiably taken it upon themselves time and time again to engage in direct action and rebellion against their oppressors, as Reina and everybody else has already discussed. Um, and so also I think it's important to highlight again that there is this direct link between the U.S. and Israel. Um, an American interest in colonialism 
and their lasting effects don't just happen within our borders. And so, for example, to this day, the Israel lobby in the United States has perpetuated America's vested financial interest in fueling the suppression of the Israel apartheid. Mm. So um, with the backing of the US, Israeli forces have regularly confiscated private land, they destroyed Palestinian households and farmland, and they've subjected Palestinians, including children, to a punitive and violent criminal justice system, often without process. They physically hurt and murder civilians. And a lot of these atrocities happen because the structures that allow them to happen uh, mirror the setups of the US police state and the prison industrial complex. And so um, I guess I wanted to ask Raina what your thoughts were about this and also um, what thoughts you might have had about the deadly exchange, which I know you wanted to mention as well. Yeah. So if anybody is interested in this topic and the like connections between the oppression of black people in the U.S. and the oppression of Palestinians in Israel, I would highly, highly recommend Angela Davis's book, um, Freedom is a Constant Struggle. Yes. Um, she, in that book, is in conversation with a Palestinian activist, and they really discuss all of the interconnectivity of our struggles. And I just think it's like the perfect explainer for how these things are like so deeply related. Um, and one of the best ways to explain the interconnectivity between the IDF and the police force in the US, and also just like these two oppressions is between by looking at the deadly exchange. And so I've seen a lot on Twitter. I, every time I talk, it sounds like I've never left Twitter in my life. Like I just like live, breathe, eat, sleep Twitter. Who lives among us has? We <laughs> sort of do. <laughs> uh, so um, my my home Twitter, um, there people have been like, the police look like an occupying fo- force in the U.S. And they don't just look like one. They, they literally are because this is a colonial project and that's the state's way of making sure that the power remains with the state and not with the people. Um, But one of the reasons that they look like that is because of what is called the deadly exchange, which was, I believe that the term was coined by um, JVP. I know that deadly exchange is their program, but I'm not sure if they Mm. made the term up, but I think that they did. So there are, these programs which pair this is like at a city level it's not even federal like there are federal programs but it's sometimes like even cities have these deals with the israeli government so it's like we it is a complicit affair at every level of government in the u.s so um u.s law enforcement will basically go to israel to learn so-called counter-terrorism tactics from the israeli military and police so It is a training program wherein the IDF teaches the U.S. how to better oppress people. But it is not a one-way street. I've seen it, like, build a lot as, like, oh, the IDF, like, is teaching the U.S. how to oppress when, in reality, the U.S. has been good on oppression from the beginning. Mm -hmm. But it's also important to note that, like, the tear gas used by the IDF and Israeli police against Palestinian protesters is made in the US. Like, Mm -hmm. it's definitely a two-way street wherein both of these colonial projects are supporting each other, like this like loving settler thing. Um, And 
So when you look at it's like if you watch videos of protests in Palestine and protests in places like Minneapolis or Ferguson, it looks the same. Yeah. Like you can see the same exact tactics being employed, the same exact like defenses being employed against protesters. And what was really interesting, which again, here I go again on Twitter, um, was a lot of Palestinians were like sharing tips and tricks to survive against an occupying force in these protests. Like what to do if someone throws tear gas at you, what to do if you've been like beat by whatever. And so um, it's really interesting how these groups who are marginalized are like sharing across borders, how to fight back against oppression. And I think that's really good because it shows that our struggles are connected, but we really need to emphasize that abolition is a global movement. And I think that this is something that people are struggling with because they're not understanding that we mean, it's a lot of people think we mean that policing and prisons are bad just in America. And that's not true. Mm. And the military are cops. Right. The like ever there's so much in not only our country, but so many other countries that do need to be abolished. And abolition is a global project. So I think that I, I don't want to stress people out because they've like just found out about abolition. So I, I'm excited. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm pretty sure I said in the last episode, like abolish everything and I stand by it. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, this this has been amazing. Um, yeah, we're going to have to have more conversations about this because I feel like, as we know, like, we obviously, like, didn't even, like, I feel like we barely scratched the surface on, like, what these connections are and, like, how we can understand our own liberation by um, understanding what Palestinians have been doing um, for a long time. And, uh, and again, build a international coalition that is, um, abolitionist. Reina, thank you so much for joining us again. This was incredible to have you. We love having you on and we hope to have you on again. Yay. Me too. Yay. Yay. Thanks, Reina. All right. Well, thanks so much for listening. That was our show. It was awesome. Um, If you'd like to follow us, we're on Twitter and Instagram at Season of the Bee. You can also go to our website at seasonofthebee.com. And if you like what we do and like to support us financially, we have a Patreon at patreon.com slash seasonofthebitch. There you'll be getting all of our episodes day early, as well as uh, getting the opportunity to join our awesome Discord and you'll the most be able wholesome, to join. perfect thing. It's the most wholesome. It's been it a is. highlight of this past two or three weeks for me. Um, we also have an abolitionist reading group that meets every Sunday. That's also really cool. And remember to re- uh, review and subscribe to us on iTunes. And you can also send us an email at seasonofthebee at gmail.com. <laughs> This is clearly my first time doing this. I was like, what is our email? Amazing. For the people at home, Laura and I were both beaming with pride the whole time. I literally started (laughs) tearing up because also, like, I feel like we're just like, please give us your money. And you're like, if you like what we do and would like to support (laughs) us. I'm like, this is some Pisces energy and we love it. We love to see it. We're here for it. The fire signs. No worries. (laughs) 
the fire signs are here to find um our audience but our water signs are like if you want to <laughs> we, <laughs> we need both nice. we need both if exactly. you want to give us one star so we true. get it <laughs> if we any of you give us one star we will come for you yeah no, yeah, one no star i'm is gonna put my foot down on that one yeah. Yeah, one star <laughs> which is the difference between cancers and pisces <laughs> mm. oh my god when are we gonna get roasted yeah i know this, we're doing it this week and okay we'll, perfect we'll put it out soon so that's so also sign up for patreon okay okay love you season of the bitch oh.